Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I'm reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. I am running a little bit late today, mostly because I had to work a little bit for my day job, and COVID rules no longer apply, which means cocktails get mixed after work, not before. So we're running a little late. But here we are now, running a little bit late, but I'm on track now. I'll get this up to you guys in a few hours. It is the last Sunday of the month, meaning it is time for the next president making this week's book of the week, Theodore Roosevelt by Henry F. Pringle. The accompanying cocktail is called Roosevelt. It is one and three quarter ounces of dark rum, a half ounce of dry vermouth, a quarter ounce of orange juice, that'll be fun, and a quarter teaspoon of sugar, garnished with an orange twist. Let's do this. Theodore Roosevelt was born October 27, 1858, in New York City, New York, to Theodore Roosevelt Sr. and Martha Stewart Bullock Roosevelt. He was the second of four children, and he was kind of a sickly kid growing up. Uh, he always had very bad eyesight, was, was incredibly nearsighted, and scrawny as heck. He was just this... I, I mean, like, for, for lack of a better description, you, you would call him a nerd, all right? I married one. That is no shame, no blame. It's just what it is. He was a scrawny kid. Probably went a little heavy on the rum there. Oh well. He was, as a result of, of being quite scrawny and quite nearsighted, he was really bookish growing up. He, he fashioned himself a naturalist and was very fascinated by natural history. Uh, he was fascinated by animals. It was kind of an amateur taxidermist as a kid, which would be creepy and morbifying in the 21st century, but in the 19th century was not actually that uncommon of a hobby. Um, his mom was less amused with the results, but it is what it is, and that's what he did with his time. He was... Contrary to popular history, he hated being called Teddy. Family might call him Teddy up until he grew up, but to everybody else it was always Theodore or TR. If you called him Teddy, it was kind of an indication that you did not in fact actually know the man because he really despised that nickname. The family was decently wealthy. His father was a bit of a philanthropist. Um, and as a child, they tr he, he was basically homeschooled the entire time. And they traveled extensively throughout Europe. Um, he, he spent a significant amount of time on the European continent. And that's where he did a lot of his schooling and learning along with his two younger siblings. To eyeball it. Orange twist here. Multitasking badly. In 1870, when the family returned after from Europe for the second time, Roosevelt Sr. advised his son that while his mind was just fine, his body was weak and sickly and needed to be worked on. He needed to strengthen his body to match his mind. And so Roosevelt Sr. constructed a home gym for Roosevelt and for his siblings, mostly for Roosevelt and his older sister, Anna, who was also quite sickly. Um, they were both, they were all expected to use the gym, but especially those two, because it was constructed specifically for them to get stronger in body. Now, Roosevelt, like most of us, despised exercise and was kind of perfunctory with it, just kind of going through the motions because his dad expected him to, until one day he experienced like an asthma attack while he was traveling and the other kids on the stagecoach like bullied him mercilessly for it and then he decided he needed to get nice and strong so that he could kick the shit out of anybody who bullied him, which is going to be a deeply ironic commentary on his life later. He started taking it seriously from there and quite willingly began boxing lessons. And from there, of course, you put the effort in your body is in fact going to get stronger. Let's shake this. Okay. Now, as he grew up, his love for natural history was sl slowly replaced by a love for outdoor sports, which is fine. But one of the sports that he especially took to was hunting. And 
as an avid reader while growing up, he glorified in his own mind the personification of the ideal man as this person who is vigorous in body and mind, a warrior and a cowboy, and basically set about making that life for himself. And I have no problem with that, right? I, I have no problem with wanting to better yourself, wanting to be a, a you know, make yourself stronger and more ably physically fit to meet the demands of the world. I do have a problem with the fact that he started all of this because he was bullied and then later in life became a phenomenal bully. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Now he entered Harvard in the fall of 1876 and he was a decent student. I mean, it wasn't necessarily top of the class, but he wasn't at the bottom either. Uh, he was just kind of, you know, there to get the degree, which is cool. That's what a lot of people do. While he was in college, he met his first wife, Alice Hathaway Lee. Now, they married in 1880, shortly after Roosevelt graduated from Harvard, and they were married for four years before she died. Now, he entered the political scene in New York, like, immediately after graduating from Harvard. I mean, that, that was just that he, he knew he needed to, you know, support his new wife, and so that's what he did. He entered politics, and he served as a member of the New York State Assembly in 1882, 83, and 84. Now, he retired following the death of his wife, Alice, who died two days after giving birth to their daughter, uh, also named Alice on her behalf. Mm. I think the vermouth actually drowns out the flavor of the rum, which is a shame because that's a really good rum. Now, Alice Lee did not die as a result of the childbirth. It wasn't childbed fever that killed her. Her cause of death was an undiagnosed Bright's disease, which, as you may recall, that's what killed President Chester Arthur. If you did not watch that video, and I will link it, obviously, Bright's disease is basically an extreme inflammation of the kidney that causes death of the kidney. Now, just days before his wife died, Roosevelt's mother died also. So this double whammy threw him seriously off his game. And he had already been sort of thinking about retiring from politics, and that kind of decided it for him. And he retired for a time to his ranch in the Dakota Badlands, which ultimately cost Roosevelt a fair chunk of his inheritance after the heavy winter of 1887-88, which decimated the cattle herds in that area, including Roosevelt's own. Now, with the closure of his ranches, plural. He had two of them. Uh, Roosevelt returned to New York where he married his second wife, Edith Caro, in 1886. Now, Caro had been a childhood friend and there was kind of reason to believe that they had courted and intended to marry before Roosevelt met Lee and fell in love with her. Uh, regardless of whether or not that's true or not, in the end, Caro became Mrs. Roosevelt and would remain married to Theodore until his death and would serve as first lady when he was in the White House. Together, they had five children of their own, Theodore III, Kermit, Ethel, Archibald, and Quentin. The four boys would serve during World War I, and the youngest, Quentin, would die in that conflict. He, he gets, I believe his plane gets shot down or experiences malfunction, and he crashes behind enemy lines. Um, obviously, that's still decades in the future at this point. Now, after his marriage to Edith and the failure of his ranches, Roosevelt needs to come up with some way to support his family. And he did re-enter politics briefly as a mayoral candidate for New York City in 1886, but ultimately he set about writing several books on history, uh, The Wilderness Hunter, History of New York, and then a three-volume series on the winning of the West. Uh, and he was not a bad historian. He was actually pretty decent in the way he traced things down and, and reported the facts. Uh, Roosevelt did, during this time, campaign hard for Harrison, and following Harrison's win in, was it 1888, on the advice of bah, 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 Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a friend of Harrison, 
and kind of a political benefactor to Roosevelt, Harrison appointed Roosevelt to the U.S. Civil Service Commission, and he would serve for that commission until 1895, so all of Harrison's term, and then into part of Grover Cleveland's term. Because Grover Cleveland, he didn't actually care for Grover Cleveland. He thought Cleveland was a corrupt politician, which is, there's a lot of irony in Theodore Roosevelt's life, but uh, Ro Cleveland genuinely Ha respected and believed in civil service reform and the and meritocracy and he saw that Roosevelt was doing a good job in that role and so he kept him on as part of the U.S. Serv civil service commission until Roosevelt left on his own in 1895 when he sought a position on the police board of New York. Now he was actually an odd man in the police board and the reason that I say that is is his idea of being absolutely strict enforcement of law and there, there was no given him, right? There was no extenuating circumstances. The law was the law. And this all sounds good in theory, but ultimately led to the belief that he only enforced the laws on the poor people of the city. And the example given in the book was a law that existed against serving alcohol on Sundays. Now, most of the establishments paid lip service to this law, closing the front doors, but paying cops to look the other way as they let patrons in through the back door. Uh, rather than fining or firing dirty cops who took these bribes, Roosevelt set about demanding the law be followed to the absolute letter and began arresting owners and shuttering businesses that continued to serve alcohol, which did not make him popular with the people because, as we learn in the 1920s, we do like our hooch. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not digging that one. I guess the vermouth, dry vermouth is a rough, was a rough sell for me. Most hardest hit were, of course, those in the low rent areas because in the high rent areas, they would just serve it in their homes, right? They'd have brandy at home and serve the people there. Now, this became, the workaround that eventually came about is, is a law was passed in New York City that a hotel with 10 rooms or more could serve alcohol on Sundays and a lot of hotels sprang up that had the requisite 10 rooms that were available to rent by the hour. Wink, wink, right? And uh, they were able to serve alcohol on the Sundays. So now prostitution exploded along with alcohol use, all of which Roosevelt was staunchly against. Now in, I put a typo on my right up here, in 1886, when McKinley ran 1886? 1896, excuse me, still have a typo in there. In 1896, when McKinley ran and won the White House, Roosevelt was again brought to national politics, this time as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And when the USS Maine was sunk in Cuba on February 15, 1898, Roosevelt resigned from this post so that he could rally the troops for the invasion of and war in Cuba. And I feel like Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders are covered in most high schools, although I can't for the life of me think why. This was like a nothing conflict, right? I mean, the only reason I can come up with is that Roosevelt himself was this kind of larger-than-life character, and he's been built up in the national zeitgeist as th this great leader, and I just, I just don't see it. Um, he built up and believed his own legend, and maybe that's part of it is because he did believe his own hype. Now, by August 1898, so a scant not even a full year, right, it was like a few months later, Roosevelt, having charged up Kettle Hill and possibly San Juan, was basically bored with war. They had essentially won the island and uh, demanded that his troops be allowed to return home. And as the war was in fact effectively over by this time, his wish was granted and he was returned as a hero to the United States. Now, he immediately threw his hat in the ring as a candidate for the governor of New York, in which capacity he was serving when he was tapped to be vice presidential candidate in 1900 for McKinley's second term in office. 
Um, now, he was scaling a mountain in the Adirondacks when word was brought to him that McKinley had succumbed to the assassin's bullet, which had been fired the week before. When, when he first heard about it, he went immediately to McKinley and was very respectful. Like, nobody would question that he handled the moment with dignity and grace and was not, you know, gleeful or malicious or, you know, oh, it's finally mine. Nothing, nothing scummy like that. He, he handled it quite well in the moment. But he had been assured the president was on the mend, and so he continued on his vacation, which was to climb the Adirondacks. And uh, that's where he was when the messenger found him and said, hey, McKinley's sliding, you better get back. And by the time he returned to civilization, McKinley had passed and he was now president of the United States. That would make him the fifth vice president to step up after a death in office. You had John Tyler after William Henry Harrison and, was it Fillmore? Oh no. Who came after, who came after Zachary Taylor? Because Taylor died in office. I have to refresh my memory. Dum, 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 Millard, Millard Fillmore. I am correct. So Millard Fillmore stepped in after Zachary Taylor. And then, of course, you have Andrew Johnson after Lincoln, Gar uh, Chester Arthur after Garfield. And now here he is, number five, stepping into the role. Now, while serving out the remaining years of McKinley's second term in office, Roosevelt managed to push through the building of the Panama Canal. But he, I mean, he didn't do it in the most diplomatic of means. Rather, he kind of propped up a military for Panama, which at the time was part of Colombia. So Panama was not its own nation. It, it belonged to Colombia at the time. He, he did so by kind of installing US troops and pushing for Panamanian independence. And by the time Colombia realized what was happening, it was basically a done deal. So he pushed all this through very quickly, very behind the scenes. So the canal could be built through an independent country that was beholden to the United States for her independence. Now. Additionally, and this is some 21st century financial fuckery, the new Panama Canal Company, which is the company that built the Panama Canal, had $40 million paid into it by the United States to build the canal. That, that was $40 million in 1900 money, 1901 money. So we're talking gold-backed dollars back then. And um, no one knows who owned the new Panama Canal Company. And I mean no one. The canal was built, obviously. It's still in use to this day, but we don't know who owned the stock to the company that built it. And so we don't know who got obscenely rich off of this deal. I mean, I did a Google search for it. Nothing came up. What returned was references to the third set of locks that were built in the 21st century. So there's a mystery for the ages. I mean, someone benefited from this, obviously. We just don't know who. And... Uh, Okay, conspiracy theorists, there's your new assignment. Go out and find out who was backing the new Panama Canal Company in the early 20th century. So we're talking like 1900 to 1908, somewhere in there. Nicaragua was initially favored for the canal across the central isthmus, but around the time the decision had to be made of where to put the canal, Mother Nature helped seal the deal by having a volcano in Nicaragua erupt. And so Panama became the preferred location. So the canal was a hot issue of the presidency, and after the canal was underway, Roosevelt publicly made the very improvident statement that he took Panama. And I, I forget the context of the conversation where this was said. I mean, it may, he may actually have been in court being depositioned for something, deposed for something. But it was publicly stated, and this caused Columbia to throw a fit, and Woodrow Wilson, to appease the situation, offered $25 million of settlement to Columbia for the loss of Panama. And Roosevelt took the settlement personally and kind of hated on Wilson for the rest of his life for that. Now, at the presidential election of 1904, Roosevelt actually made history as the first inheritor of the position to win the nomination and election in his own right. Now, none of the other, you know, vice presidents who stepped into the role because of death 
had even been nominated in their own right. They immediately were pushed out, like, you know, John Tyler was hated by both parties. Miller Fillmore was put, pushed aside for... Steel Trap Mind of Mine is not so steely. Franklin Pierce, he got the nomination after Fillmore. Um, and then you had um, Andrew Johnson. Of course, he lost to Grant. Chester Arthur wasn't even nominated. So here we've got Teddy Roosevelt won a nomination and the election in his own right. And that, that was new. That, that was big. No other VP had done that. And um, he then made the very foolish statement that he this will have been his second term, even though he only won one on his own right, and he would not run again in 1908. Now, his second term was basically spent acting as intermediary between various European powers and as a peacemaker between Japan and Russia during the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905. During that conflict, the U.S. unofficially backed Japan. Japan was officially backed by the United Kingdom. Roosevelt's diplomatic corps did manage to negotiate the formal peace between the two warring nations in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on September 5, 1905. Now, the events in Europe were territorial grabs, essentially, and it kind of, he lays out the groundwork for how, basically, Europe backed the Kaiser into a corner, which led to World War One. right? Uh, part of it was France made a territorial grab for Morocco, which pushed Germany out of that country, and that didn't help matters. Um, a, a not insignificant chunk of the book was l spent laying out the world events that lead to World War One less than a decade after Roosevelt was out. And I mean, years, like mere years, right? Uh, basically, all the pieces were there. Roosevelt just managed to kick the can down the road a little bit so that the World War became someone else's problem. Which is ironic, given how much Roosevelt glorified war. Or maybe not. I mean, as commander-in-chief, he would not have been able to go to war himself. And when the Great War kicked off and America finally entered the fray, he petitioned Wilson to raise a battalion on his own and go fight, for, fight himself. Uh, the petition was denied, but he did make the attempt. When the election year of 1908 rolled around, Roosevelt made the announcement reconfirming that he was not seeking his own second term and throwing his support to William Howard Taft, who had been his secretary of war up till that point. And with the backing of Roosevelt, Taft won quite handily, and upon leaving office, Roosevelt set sail for Africa and Europe. In Africa, he basically hunted the continent, killing like 200 animals, which he had shipped back to the Smithsonian for preservation and display. I think they said only like 60 of them were able to be displayed. I don't know if that's just because there was damage in transit or what, but he was outraged that they didn't take the whole collection for the American people. The second continent, so Europe, he basically schmoozed his way around the crown heads of Europe. Uh, and he was a huge hit. Everybody loved him. The crown heads adored him. Uh, he even attended the funeral of King Edward VII as the American representative on behalf of President Taft, um, Edward VII having died, and Roosevelt was in Europe already. And so Taft wired him and said, hey, can you go and represent the United States at this funeral, which he did. And, and graciously. I mean, he, he managed to not turn it into something all about him, which I'm little surprised by that, but there it is. Yeah, it's not an awesome one. I'm not digging that. I think it's the vermouth, though, because the rum was, I, you know, rum tends to be sweet on its own, right, but the vermouth just sucks it out. Maybe I should have made it a sweet vermouth. The recipe calls for dry, but woof. Now, when Roosevelt, it's Roosevelt, not Roosevelt. When Roosevelt returned to the States in 1910 is kind of when the division with Taft became a thing. Up until then, they had been friendly. 
Uh, Roosevelt decided that he could do things better, though. And while he denied that this is what he was doing, he essentially ban began campaigning, laying out the groundwork for his own return to politics in 1912. And he started out doing like a train tour through the United States, and by like his second or third stop, he had like 25 newspaper paper men following along to see what he was going to say next. So he can say, or he said that he wasn't trying to campaign, but really he was campaigning. And he began by creating a platform on which he would run, which he called the New Nationalism, and it absolutely reeked of socialism. Uh, it, quote, the betterment which we must, the betterment which we seek must be accomplished, I believe, mainly through the national government. The New Nationalism puts the national need before sectional or personal advantage. The New Nationalism regards the executive power as the steward of the public welfare. It demands the judiciary that it shall be interested primarily in human welfare rather than in property. End quote. And people before property sounds good, except that the only way to actually make that happen is for the government to own all the property and the people to own nothing. And he essentially turned his back on the Constitution, which was written to protect property rights, right? Uh, he also had the idea that the wealthy should not be able to buy their way out of trouble, which is a fine idea, and I agree with it. However, by this time in history, the wealthy already owned our elected officials. Roosevelt's campaign in 1904 is testament to that. Many rich financiers had contributed huge sums of money to his campaign, which was not required to be kept track of or disclosed. Campaign finance reform had not yet happened at that point in time. So huge sums of money were poured into his coffers, none of which was ever accounted for, and he benefited directly from that. Uh, he turned his back entirely on the Republican Party in 1912, forming his own progressive bull moose party for that year. But since the platform differed little from what the Democrats proposed and the Democratic nominee Woodrow Wilson had done a respectable job running New Jersey the year before the election, Wilson won in an absolute landslide. He got like 436 electoral votes for Roosevelt's 88 and Taft's 8. Um, we're going to learn more on that in the next few months because, you know, we still have Taft and Wilson to get to. Now, with his defeat in 1912, Roosevelt truly was done with politics, and he refused to run again, even though his own Progressive Party nominated him in 1916, he, he was done. And when the U.S. finally entered the Great War in 1917, Roosevelt petitioned to form his own brigade and was rejected, probably for the best. Like, by this time, his health was not the most awesome. He was wholly blind in one eye, and within a year would be completely deaf in one ear. Uh, Roosevelt died at his home in Oyster Bay on January 6, 1919, uh, at coronary embolism, basically. And that was his life. He was, he was a larger-than-life character. I don't want to downplay that. The problem is that he built up his own hype, and so many people believed it, and that's not what I got out of this book. Reading this book, Roosevelt just came across as thoroughly unlikable. And I don't know if it's just that, you know, I'm 100 years later, I'm not a product of that time, but he was thoroughly unlikable. And on paper, he reads like a bully and a pompous ass. He undoubtedly had a politician's charm. He must have to have won an election in his own right and to have campaigned effectively on behalf of others throughout the years. And he did, right? He campaigned pretty for, for uh, Harrison. He campaigned for McKinley. He, he won his own right. He campaigned for Taft. All of these things happened. But the reason he ran in 1912 is that Taft wasn't running the things the way that Roosevelt wanted them run. Now, Roosevelt was no longer in the White House, but rather than gracefully retire from the field, he just hounded Taft repeatedly, uh, basically just breaking the man's spirit. And just just awful human being. Uh, Roosevelt, not Taft. I don't know enough about Taft to say one way or the other. 
Not just Taft. Anybody Roosevelt saw as a political rival, he bullied mercilessly until they quit altogether. Uh, there was one incident in Brownsville, Texas, where the townspeople made the allegation that the black troops who were stationed there had rioted and shot up the town, resulting in the dismissal of like 160 army personnel. Uh, such dismissal made them ineligible for military benefits, and Roosevelt accepted this information uncritically. When Senator Joseph B. Foraker from Ohio showed pretty conclusively that it was the townspeople, the racist townspeople who'd shot up their own town and framed the troopers, Roosevelt refused to back down. He, I mean, he refused to accept that he had made an error in judgment and hounded Foraker into retirement rather than just admit that he had made a mistake. I mean, something like five of the troopers were reinstated, but the bulk of them were left to fend for themselves with this you know, dishonorable discharge from the military on their records. Well, the book, it was well written. It did win a Pulitzer Prize in its day. It was originally written in 1931. It was updated in 1956 to reflect how some of Roosevelt's, pol or, yeah, Roosevelt's policies contributed to World War II, specifically the handling of Japan and Japanese citizens following the, the Russo-Japanese War. Um, Roosevelt just came across as unlikable, which made it hard for me to get through. He, he was not, to me, he was not somebody I could relate to that made me like him as a human being. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes as long as you can own that mistake, which he never truly did. I and mean, he might say, yeah, I did that, but so what, right? Which is a very, maybe it's just because I'm so sick of the corrupt politicians in the 21st century that I look at that and say, oh, that's where all this shit started, was with Roosevelt. Uh, unless it was politically expedient to admit to X, which again, is a very political thing to do. An example in that is when he was young, he believed in free trade until he joined the Republican Party. And then like that, he was cured of his belief in free trade. It was no longer politically convenient to believe that. So he is somewhere near the bottom of my personal ranking. I just, I dislike bullies and he was a bully. He is, to me, he just, like I said, Reeves is really unlikable and not somebody to be respected or admired. Mm, didn't care for the man. He's somewhere near the bottom. Um, he might actually be lower than Andrew Jackson. We're going to see what happens with Taft and Wilson. I, I already have some opinions about Wilson. We're going to find out just how right I am on those. Um, if you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit subscribe, and I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.